Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 75, Hallelujah. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode, Seeing the Soul in the Official Zack Snyder's Justice League Teaser. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. My friends, hallelujah, praise the Lord. (laughs) COVID-19 has taken convention season from us, but instead, through the incredible and deliberate efforts of the Warner Media team, we were given DC Fandom, which was a 24-hour front row seat to a Hall H experience all in the comfort of your own home, and even apart we were together, which has been shown to enhance an experience. Dr. Lori Santos describes such an experiment. Subjects aren't instructed to talk to each other, in fact, they're kind of doing this silently, kind of behind a barrier. They just know that somebody else is there doing the same thing. And the question is, does this affect your enjoyment of things? And here's what Boothby and colleagues find. If you measure how much people like the chocolate in the shared experience, they end up liking the chocolate more, a whole point on the chocolate liking scale. And if you ask other things like the flavorfulness of the chocolate, kind of how rich the experience is, you get the same sort of effect. We're doing it with somebody else is making these things better. This is crazy. The same exact chocolate tastes more delicious if you just happen to be in the same room as somebody who's tasting the same chocolate. You're not talking to each other. You don't have a connection. This is a stranger to you. Imagine all the richness of watching Netflix with your sweet mates or going to the movies with your sweet mates or going to an art show with your sweet mates or eating the delicious Solomon dining hall food with your friends. All of a sudden, just being around somebody is making these good experiences even better. And so we think that that might be kind of a mechanism of why social connection is doing all of its work. It's just making the richness of life even richer among other sorts of things that it's doing. And so packing our content into that time frame to put us in proximity of experience made it all the better. And by the same token, consider all the other listeners enjoying this episode right along with you. (laughs) Well, there's so much to cover, but I have to go where my excitement leads me, and that's right to Zack Snyder's Justice League. So I know that you had as great a fandom as I did, and we'll talk about everything else in time, but really, there's no way I'm going to be able to contain my excitement about Zack Snyder's Justice League, even if I tried. And so that's this episode, which is what it is in my haste. To paraphrase Pascal, it's long because I didn't have time to make it short. (laughs) But to give you a roadmap of what I want to hit, I'm just going to give you my overall feelings first, then use Hallelujah as a framework for analysis, and finally we'll do a selected breakdown along with the themes of Justice League. So in other words, from macro to micro, from big picture emotions and themes down to the little details, so let's go. Overall, my fandom experience has been great. I was a little needlessly stressed that I would be burnt out from all the overtime I had been doing to free up the hours for fandom. But I'm a Boy Scout type that always overprepares for any engagement, be it battle in court or attending a convention, when in reality all you really need is your wits, wallet, attitude, and badge. But I went in with lowered expectations and was pleasantly surprised. 
For Zach's panel, the support of the cast was wonderful, but expected. Henry and Ray's questions covered themes we'll touch on later. Patty's support was a great show of solidarity between directors whose fans are sometimes at odds. But the first thing that caught me off guard was not only the appearance of Fiona, but the deliberate intention for the panelists to hear from the fans. This inversion of the norm showed how much Zach and Warner was respecting and listening. A question that he'd repeat across interviews was, did you believe it would happen? So did you really think it was going to happen though? So when you started in this movement, did you think there was a chance that it would actually, that they would do this? Because extraordinary faith and conviction, yielding extraordinary reward, should give us pause. Not because of success, keeping survivorship bias in mind, but because of that conviction. What's survivorship bias? In simple terms, survivorship bias is the tendency to only focus on the survivors instead of everyone. Sometimes that means you only see the winners, not the losers. At other times, it means you only see the rich and the successful, but not the thousands who also worked hard but failed. Survivorship bias will make you want to follow big CEOs, star athletes, or actors for advice on how to live your life and how to become successful. Most want to hear stories of struggling against the same forces that they themselves struggle against daily and coming out as the winner. The caveat is that the bias will also make you conveniently forget about those that could tell you what to avoid, the ones who failed. And without both sides of the coin, you can easily come to the wrong conclusions. We are all prone to logical errors. It's especially hard to deal with survivorship bias since you need to be conscious of the fact that you are missing something. Though it's a pain, it's well worth thinking about. After all, we all want to make better decisions. It's critical to learn from our failures, but we also can't let that paralyze us. If people only played the odds and stayed safe on the sidelines, we wouldn't have heroes, athletes, actors, or astronauts. No one would get married or start a family or a restaurant. To chase a dream that only a fraction of a fraction ever achieve requires some conviction. This is the the hero question. Sure, there are utilitarian considerations. The faith may fit one's cultural upbringing as a community touchstone. The actor is talented and devastatingly attractive, or the superhero has incredible powers. However, you can have all those things and still give up. Zack asks the question of Fiona that he asks all heroes. Why? As he says in interview after interview, he's always after, quote-unquote, the why of it. Not just because it makes for interesting plot or logical structure or a coherent film, but because this is a universal and more importantly transferable question. You get to the why of it with Superman, Batman, the Justice League, and you might just get to the why of it of your own hero's journey. To have the mixture of a cause, courage, conviction, conscientiousness, and action to create change. Especially when we fail. I mean, the thing about Bruce, I think that's interesting is that he has gotten stuff done in his life, you know, regardless of his dark sort of, he does brood in a cave and he's, he does a lot of cave dwelling. But other than that, he's a guy that actually is capable of, um, of making change or getting stuff done. And I think that for him, this notion that he kind of fucked up a little bit or it kind of read it wrong is a problem, you know, and he has to fix it. You know, and I think that that, that's cool. A motivated Bruce Wayne is a cool thing. You saw what he was motivated by sort of hate and anger. What is that, what is that same guy who's motivated by like trying to make it right? Too often, critics come at these films influenced by survivorship bias. Survivorship bias, only paying attention to successes. A similar phenomenon is partly responsible for why music feels like it was just 
better back in the day than it is now. Is that really true, or are we just remembering the good stuff? What critics often misunderstand about these films is that they are not here to reinforce your fond memories of nostalgia, prone only to idolize our heroes, all while missing the things that went wrong, failed, or fell short. They are instead about learning from those issues and difficulties to create miracles, to release the Snyder Cut. Not formulas, rules, codes adhered to absolutely, never kill or always save, but the messy confluence of circumstances, specifics, and actions that made you move. Zack's a student of that, which is why he'll learn it from Fiona and Dexter as much as Batman or Superman. Zack's living the lesson of Percival and asking the spontaneous question of a noble heart that will heal, even if he has to be the fool to do it. A world-famous, multi-billion dollar Hollywood director asking the fan the why of it? I love it. You don't see that every day. Live the lesson of your art. Sorry I'm waxing on and on, I'm just in that sort of mood. (laughs) So quickly, my overall impressions of the teaser. Well, the song threw me originally because Justice League has had lyrical trailers before and I still had the bitter taste of ashes in my mouth from being burned so bad back then. But I settled in, realizing that using Cohen's song preserves Junkie XL's score for us, and knowing Zach's love for Cohen and our universal love for the song did make it resonate. And of course, I was instantly taken with the visuals. Not only how polished and beautiful, but, well, let me play you an excerpt from my first reactions to the theatrical release. You can find the full Ramble Road and its context back in February of 2019 of the feed. I, there is no, there's no soul to it. That's the, that's the thing that really bothers me. Like, I can't feel the soul. <laughs> So what do you think I felt when I saw this teaser? (laughs) Seeing the footage restored, arcs fulfilled, character story, and themes referenced, all with Zack's signature style, I felt the soul and heart again. This teaser is incredibly Zack Snyder. Not only does it have the stories, layers, coded and superficial meanings, music and pacing, beautiful people and melancholy mood, but it's filled with gratuitous and gorgeous slow motion, ramping, and other examples of his style. What made the teaser really sing was the sense that Zack did everything he wanted, the way that he wanted, without quarter or compromise, even down to that outrageous aspect ratio, which would drive adherents of fixed formulas mad. (laughs) All of which is a very long-winded way of saying I was powerfully moved seeing Zack did it his way. The frustration of an artist or visionary constrained by those without insight, empathy, or ambition must be enormous. But to finally say what you wanted to say the way that you wanted to say it, that moved me more than anything else. That metatextual story of creative death and resurrection and reunion is what got me, and why Clark's embracing a smiling Lois and his mother Martha is the scene that gave me a lump in my throat, that gets my feelings welling up. Especially now, when we're more acquainted with loss, grief, and mourning, That relief of life and reunion is so touching, and it hits me right here. (laughs) Okay, you get it. (laughs) Let's get on to our second section on Hallelujah before we get on to the details of the teaser. I'm going to put you through a multi-level analysis of Hallelujah because it inspires and interests me, and I can only hope and believe that it may interest and inspire some of you. For a roadmap of this section, we're going to start with the word then the song, 
the selection, and finally the story. So all of that out of the way, let's go. Starting with the word itself, today hallelujah is mostly used as a joyful exclamation. It comes from a biblical Hebrew phrase that typically goes untranslated. In brief, it means praise the Lord. But to dig a little deeper, hallelujah is a plural imperative to praise with song and worship. So an expanded translation would be you all should praise and worship. The Yah is an abbreviation of Yahweh, or a name of God. And so the word goes untranslated because the name was sacred and to be untouched. And in some Orthodox traditions, every instance would be replaced with Adonai, or the Lord. So Hallelujah could be seen as a condensation of the entire Judeo-Christian tradition, which posits that our essential purpose for being is to worship God. There are countless scriptures to that effect, but the point is that the word is a restatement of the essential why of it all from that tradition's perspective. If mankind was created to worship God, then the word itself is a fulfillment of mankind's purpose. It is simultaneously saying, exhorting, and doing the very thing one is meant for. And in that sense, it is analogous to the Campbellian quest to follow one's bliss. If your framework is religious, then this would be your highest calling and accordingly your bliss to follow. But if you have a different framework, then you'd be replacing God with some other supreme ideal. In summary, any situation in which you sincerely say hallelujah, you are closer to your purpose in life, your calling, and what fulfills you. A one-word distillation of Campbell's famous follow-your-bliss philosophy of special meaning and influence on Zach. And so the spirit is the same even if the target is different. We know this because the songwriter Leonard Cohen went through countless drafts of the song, including a 1989 secular hallelujah. You know, I wrote this song couple of, well, it seemed like yesterday, but I guess it was five or six years ago, and it uh, had a chorus called Hallelujah. It was a song that had uh, references to the Bible in it, although uh, these references became more remote. It's a song that went from the beginning to the end. And finally, I understood that it was not necessary to refer to the Bible anymore, and I rewrote the song. This is the secular Hallelujah. Now, the song has a very storied history, which we'll get into, which eventually reintroduces the biblical references within, but the point is that Cohen felt it was possible to render a godless hallelujah, and so the song is not intended to be conventionally religious, and I think that will become even more clear as we continue, but that isn't to say it isn't spiritual. Cohen was raised in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, versed in Christian theology, and ordained a Zen Buddhist monk after a stint in a monastery. <laughs> and yet this exchange. You seem driven by two opposing engines. You know, on the one hand, so many of your songs are about lusts and appetites and beauty and seeking pleasure of various sorts. And at the same time, you've also devoted years of your life to meditation and the desire for some kind of transcendence. And also your songs make it clear that you're not unfamiliar with depression and regret and fear, which are again the kind of things that one tries to quiet through meditation. Did you become a Buddhist because your desires were so dominant? Well, I never became a Buddhist, to tell you the truth. <laughs> all in all, you have somebody versed in spiritual vocabulary for transcendent human experiences outside religion and most often inside relationships, especially romantic. Cohen introduces a theme that will reappear in many of the love songs across his career, comparing love to religion. And Jesus was a sailor 
When he walked upon the water And he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower Here Cohen sings a tale of Jesus Christ, comparing the divine religious experience to love. This is made clear in the second chorus, where Cohen mimics the descriptions of Suzanne to talk about Jesus. And you want to travel with him And you want to travel blind And you think maybe you'll trust him For he's touched your perfect body with his mind for Cohen, love is just as powerful and just as mysterious as any god or religion. While there are countless interpretations of any piece of poetry, any set of lyrics, I think this tends to be the most compelling and consistent reading of Hallelujah. The two are linked in the way the music is able to reflect love, and by the comparisons between love and religion. The divinity, pain, and religion of love all come together in Cohen's most famous love song, Hallelujah. secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you? Hallelujah is by far the most obvious mixing of love and religion in Cohen's career. Musically it's in 12-8 time and composed to mimic gospel music. Cohen had written and performed countless variations of Hallelujah, but the version published and immortalized in 1984 contained four verses which traced the lifespan of a relationship from abstract ideal to infatuated submission and carnal ecstasy to cold and broken resignation to finally wise and hopeful determination. When Cohen originally wrote this song, he wrote 80 verses and then trimmed down to a couple on the recording. However, in live performances, he's thrown in other verses. In one of them, Cohen says that love is not a great victory. It's painful. It's difficult. It's the first step in a long path. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch. But listen, love, love is not some kind of victory march. No, it's a cold and it's a very long. In other excluded verses, the song is explicitly carnal or looking at something broken. But Cohen says that these broken, painful relationships are no different than something holy, divine, and true. In the third verse of the studio release, he says that there's a beauty in truth and real emotion, regardless of whether it's a broken or a holy hallelujah. There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter. This perspective provides some hope in a song that's otherwise pretty bleak, and it leads us to the verse that Cohen almost always closes the song with. In a song discussing how much love hurts, how much pain it can bring, we end with Cohen admitting that he's willing to do it all again. He's willing to stand up with nothing but a hallelujah and attempt to find love once more. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing. I think that willingness to find love through the pain is what allowed Cohen to make such incredible music. Cohen deigns to give us the full spectrum, contrasting it with the typical love song. Most love songs operate in the moment. It's either about wanting it and not having it, 
having it and wanting more, having it and not wanting it, or having had it and wanting it back. What makes this song rare, perhaps even unique, is its brutally honest look at love's larger trajectory. Those not-so-savory feelings of entrapment, loathing, and soul-crushing disappointment that, more often than not, tend to define romantic relationships. In fact, the song makes much more of the messiness and downright violence of love than the fleeting feeling of fluttering butterflies. This is the only popular song I can think of where Moonlight is not a force which lulls and seduces, but overthrows, but one impressive in its scope and originality. Even if love warrants a divine framework, Cohen honors its full spectrum, which sounds like a certain Superman director's intentions as well. I am a firm believer in Superman's position in the pantheon at the top. And that's why I'm obsessed with him and his like good and bad and happy and sad and dead and alive and like everything because I want him on a full in full volume, in full spectrum of emotion. I don't want him like one note Boy Scout. I'm here to like help everyone. But I hear the words of Jorel and you hear the words of Pa Kent ringing in his ear, trying to keep him on, on track. And we all get distracted and pushed and yeah. pulled by like the world. And we have this great ideals and we get turned into something else. Is Superman not more relatable when he is... 100%. Far too often, this is misunderstood and criticized as depressing. Cohen, when asked if his works were depressing, replied, Yeah, it's like uh, the assumption is that the world is really very gay and jovial and uh, nothing terrible ever happens. I think the songs are true and uh, they're not for everybody. But uh, I think that the effect they have on people whose uh, nature can respond to them is uh, far from depressing. If you're this far in, still listening, I have to believe that this is for you. That your nature responds to it. Or, as Zach might say, that this was made for grown-ups and we're in the demographic. <laughs> so to Zach's point that we have a great idea that turns into something else, let's look at the opening verse with the following disclaimer. Keep in mind too that this song is widely open for interpretation. There are as many interpretations as there are people who listen to it. And Leonard Cohen also wasn't the kind of guy apparently who wrote a song that was like A to B to C. Oh, you made it. That's what the song is all about. It's more of like a snapshot of different pictures of life and you just kind of have to take the pictures for what they are. And so Hallelujah opens. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. So this is the first of several biblical allusions. The David here is the shepherd boy who slew the giant Goliath, played the harp to soothe the mad king Saul's spirits, wrote psalms, and became a king of Israel. If Superman is known as the Man of Steel in reference to his strength and endurance, or the Man of Tomorrow for his hope of the future, then David is called the man after God's own heart in the Bible after his relentless pursuit of God. And so the song is opening with an ideal on top of an ideal, a pinnacle of purpose to aspire to. The greatest warrior poet king played a special secret chord to worship the greatest God. The chord is inherently a combination of things and parts brought into a harmonious whole. But like most ideals, it's also a secret. So maybe it's a literal chord. Maybe it's the union of people in a relationship. Maybe it's a team coming together or a piece of art. The point is that we start with a great ideal, but it turns into something else. But you don't really care for music, do you? 
So in the song, the singer is contrasting David's pursuit of God with his own relationship to a woman. And so he believed that there was this supreme ideal to obtain, but in truth, it's more than the sum of its parts. It's not the chord, the literal sonic components, the music that pleases the Lord. And if the chord is a relationship, just putting two people together isn't enough. If it's a team, just having all the characters isn't enough. If it's a Superman movie, just ticking off all the checkboxes isn't enough. Yet, when we're in pursuit of a mysterious ideal, often that's all we can do. To go through the motions, the expected elements, trying to stumble on to that secret chord. And that's what the singer goes through next. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. The song is literally calling out the musical elements being performed. This is the stage where all we try to do is follow the rules, living our lives as our father saw it, following the advice of our mother or the old knight without understanding, just mechanical replication, trying to get to that magic chord. You're spelling out everything that you've tried and not sure why it hasn't worked. You're baffled, but you keep trying. The baffled king composing hallelujah. You'll chase that ideal, but the longer it goes, the doubts creep in. And so you have the next line. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. It is tough to cling to abstract ideals, so in the rest of the verse, his perfect chord, his ideal relationship, is overthrown by the pursuit of a specific woman. That vague ideal is compromised, subdued by, or instantiated into the particular, going from an abstract ideal to an actual relationship with someone who becomes your hallelujah, or to map it onto discussions in earlier episodes, going from a crisis of faith to a commitment. Of course, no longer dealing with divinely perfect entities, things begin to bleed, burn, or break. Many of the other verses describe the ups and downs of real relationships, their ebb and flow. But by the end, we return to where we started, the wizened one who knows the cost and will pay it, finding that despite it all, the pursuit of the ideal was still worth it, still meaningful and beautiful in its own right. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I told the truth, I didn't come to fool you. And even though all went wrong, I stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my lips but hallelujah. And so that's a fairly basic interpretation. And if you'd like to know more, there'll be links in the show notes. So let's turn to Zach's selection of the song. To be clear, the song was selected first, and the teaser was cut to the song. Speaking recently on Real in Motion, Zach said, it was on two years ago. Uh, it's a personal song, you know, for okay. It's something that uh, I just felt like was right for this. Yeah. And I think that that song in particular, uh, really for all of us, and, and, and it has significance beyond mm-hmm. just the movie. And I think oh. we all love the song, and, and it just felt like I was oh, it was, to, like, it, wrangle this, it, this whole thing into like a, yeah. into a, yeah. the, the why of it. I just felt like that song was the right the right way to do it. So even that brief response is multi-layered, from the significance to his family, to all of us, to the feel, to its meaning. When it comes to any artistic choice, rarely is Zach one-dimensional. Superficially, anyone can see the song as simply rejoicing. Thank goodness it's finally coming out. On another, still shallow level, the religious word, the gospel tone, and you could say that this would be a religious experience. And yet, on another level, some might claim that this film is as important as divine things. But I think that's all a trap for those who fail to follow Snyder's sensibilities. Speaking with Crave Online in 2009 about the inclusion of Hallelujah in Watchmen, Zach said, quote, 
I originally had the Alison Crow version of the song, the version that I've always loved, but in the end it was just too romantic. Everyone thought that I had meant it. They thought that the love scene was serious. Not that it's not serious, but her version was too sexy. So I was like, yeah, we've got to go back to the Leonard Cohen. For me, it's incredibly ironic, even with that version of the song. It's incredibly ironic. I don't care what version of Hallelujah on that love scene. It's ridiculous in a great way. With Leonard Cohen, it's like you can't miss it, can you? I'm sure some people will, but that's fine. End quote. <laughs> in exactly the same way that Hallelujah often gets mistaken as a gospel hymn more religiously motivated, Zach's works often act as an indictment for the superficial take. <laughs> a sucker punch, some might say with something much more ambiguous and complicated underneath. Similar to how the exact same advice can mean different things later in life in a different context. Like the instruction Percival received as a boy was only fully understood just before he found the grail. So as Zach says, I believe his use of Hallelujah and Watchmen was intentionally ironic, while here, it's fully sincere. Now, Watchmen, at its root, is always ironic, a cover version of characters Moore couldn't use to deconstruct the genre. And you could see Hallelujah like that, a gospel cover of a salacious love affair gone wrong deconstructing the genre, superficially saying that every exclamation of Hallelujah is of wanton ecstasy. But certainly, it can be sung sincerely, speaking to something much deeper about longing, fulfillment, and everything else we face in relationship. This is why we dove into the details of the song and its meanings before hitting the hot takes. And so while it's completely comfortable with spiritual vocabulary, it is far from intending a religious expression. Instead, it's about the ups and downs of life going through it and prevailing despite it all. It's about reality clashing with ideals and how the pursuit remains worthy if we'll only wake up and see. These are themes and ideals which we've always needed and that Snyder continually explores. A Superman who has to kill is still Superman. A Batman who has killed is still Batman. An imperfect world is still worth fighting for. Whatever your dreams were for yourself, your marriage, your family, the picture you had before you brought kids into the world or into your family, it's not going to survive first contact with the real world. Instead of the sterile, pre-planned, pre-programmed fragility of Krypton, the real world is messy, chaotic, a struggle, but oh so worth it. And the song is about coming to the place of saying, I'd do it all again, and helping you to get there too. And of course, that all comes from an analysis of the lyrics. And granted, my emphasis tends towards words, ideas, logic, rationales, plots, and story. But Zach isn't as straight-jacketed as I in creating his art. It's not like Hallelujah was just some spoken word poem over a slideshow. The song is a song, and we really care for music, don't ya? Three times Zach said on Reel in Motion that the song felt right. And again, with Crave Online, asked how he chooses music, Zach said, quote, As far as the music goes, I love the tone. I love tone in a movie. Tone is more important than story to me. It's just the way a movie smells, the way a movie is. It's what you remember after the movie was over. Like, when you leave a movie, it's like, what was that movie about? Well, it was about a bank robbery, and then they found there was a nuclear weapon in the safe. Well... Whatever it is, that part of the movie really becomes abstract, I think. You remember the scenes and the characters and the feelings of the movie. End quote. And then Zach goes on to explain how he goes through his library searching for that feeling. In other words, Zach is trying to find a particular feeling, one that reinforces the themes of his films. The following analysis explains how Cohen's composition creates a sense of ambiguity. Hallelujah is a masterclass in blending lyrics and harmony, so in honor of one of modern music's greatest poets, I'd like to look at exactly what he was talking about. The verse begins like this. 
going back and forth between C major and A minor. This creates a very specific effect because these two sounds are very closely related. There's only one note different between the two chords, so we really don't feel like we're moving much yet. But that's not it. This section leaves us with a very important question. What key are we in? What's the actual root here? It's surprisingly hard to say. The scales associated with these chords are incredibly similar. In fact, they share all the same notes, so in order to tell them apart, we have to look at how those notes function. In both scales, both of these chords are what's known as tonic function chords. This means they're at rest, they don't move, and they're not directional, so no matter which key we're in, the results are basically the same. The best answer we can give is that it's ambiguous. And this creates a sense of melancholy, gravity, and weight. This is clearly not the triumphant. Instead, something much more complicated. In fact, in the entire melody of the song, we never actually hear a C sung over a C chord until the very last note of the chorus. It shows up over some A minors, and we briefly hear one over an F chord, but despite the harmony in the verse featuring multiple strong resolutions to C, the melody just refuses to follow it. Combining major harmony with a melody that emphasizes the minor scale is a great way to make your music feel sad but still hopeful, which is exactly what Hallelujah is. The song even gives more dimension to the team up as they come together. I have to talk about the choir. This was a controversial choice on Cohen's part, and most covers of the song leave it out, but I think that's a mistake. Why? Well, as an analogy, I've always felt that the only version of What a Wonderful World that really worked for me was the original performed by Louis Armstrong. Lots of people have covered it, many with much more traditionally beautiful voices, but the song doesn't need beauty. It already has that, and putting a perfect voice on top makes it feel almost sickly sweet. What the song needs is life, and that's what Armstrong's rough, raspy smoker voice brings. It elevates the piece so it's not just a song about how wonderful the world is, it's a song about seeing that wonder even though you have every reason not to. It's about actively choosing to find beauty in a world that on its surface seems painful and ugly, and that doesn't work without a voice that says, I've seen things. Hallelujah is kind of the opposite of that. At first glance, it's a deeply sad song, and when most artists cover it, they just lean into that, layering on more and more melancholy in a never-ending arms race to see who can make it the most depressing. But that's not what Hallelujah is at least not to me. I think this is best summed up by one of the later verses. Even though it all went wrong, I will stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. This isn't a dude who's been defeated. This is a dude who knows the price and he's willing to pay it. He's surrendering control, placing his fate in the hands of a higher power in the hopes that it can deliver him salvation. It's about the separation between the human and the divine and the sacrifices we have to make in order to cross that barrier. That's why the choir sings hallelujah because Cohen can't do it on his own. This analysis is spot on. In fact, in another interview, Cohen says that's exactly why he had a choir. It was very much influenced by women's background voices. I, I like those songs that had that feel, so those are the sounds I wanted to try to reproduce. Also, my own voice sounded so disagreeable <laughs> to me when I listened to it that I really needed the sweetening of women's voices behind me. You can see why Zach said it felt right. There's some of the soul you can feel watching this, absent from that other version. And these are just some of the myriad of reasons that may exist only in the mind of Zach. The delight of his work is coming to figure these things out and the insights that they bring. So for the last part of our song analysis, we're going to move on to the story of the song. 
As a matter of record, these may or may not have been an intended parallel to the saga of the Snyder Cut, especially given that the song was selected two years ago. Nonetheless, these are fun parallels to consider. When asked about the incredible success of Hallelujah after languishing in obscurity for years, Cohen said, Well, I was happy that the song was being used. Of course, there were certain ironic and amusing sidebars, you know, because the record that it came from, which was called Various Positions. That record Sony wouldn't put out. They didn't think it was good enough, but it wasn't considered good enough for the American market. It wasn't put out. So there was a certain sense of, a mild sense of revenge that arose in my heart. I wouldn't begrudge Zach a mild sense of revenge over the Snyder Cut, would you? <laughs> so longtime listeners of this show may have already heard some of these revisionist history excerpts, which I'd put into the extras of my Suicide Squad episode. Journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell compared conceptual innovators who seem to arrive at their works of genius all at once, Picasso, with experimental innovators who iterate forever until genius emerges, Cezanne. I think it warrants a revisit in the light of the Snyder Cut. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. That's the song Hallelujah. It was composed by the Canadian songwriter Leonard Cohen. But basically, everybody has done a cover of Hallelujah. Rufus Wainwright, U2, Jeff Buckley, Bon Jovi, John Cale, Bob Dylan. I could go on. It's featured in countless TV and movie soundtracks. If you ride the New York City subway on a regular basis, you'll probably hear a busker singing it virtually every day. And here's what's interesting about that song. It is so not Picasso. It is Cezanne. Textbook Cezanne. A few years ago, the music writer Alan Light wrote an absolutely wonderful book, an entire book, on the song Hallelujah. It's called The Holy or the Broken, and one of the big themes is how peculiar Leonard Cohen is. He's a poet, a tortured poet. He is a writer in that way, that he labors over what these lyrics are, line by line, word by word, throws a lot away, spends a great deal of time, and Hallelujah famously out of all of these is probably the song that that he says uh, bedeviled him the most. He sort of was chasing some idea with this song and couldn't find it and just kept writing and writing and and depending when he tells the story wrote 50 or 60 or 70 verses. And I don't know what that I don't know if that means variations on verses. I don't know if that means entirely like how much of this is exaggeration, but it doesn't matter. It's It's at a whole other other level. Well, there's the famous story that, you know, Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan have this kind of mutual admiration thing and apparently they met up and Dylan said, oh, I like that song Hallelujah, which is a fascinating piece of this story that really the first person who paid attention to Hallelujah as an important song was Bob Dylan. But he said to Leonard, you know, I like that song. How long did you work on that? And Leonard said, I told him uh, that I'd worked on it for two years. Which was a lie. Cohen later confessed it took him much longer. Then Cohen asks Dylan how long it took him to write the song I and I. And Bob said, yeah, 15 minutes. Dylan is Picasso. With Leonard, it's not the first thought, best thought school at all. And he talks about about being in a hotel room in his underwear, banging his head on the floor because he couldn't solve this song, Hallelujah. Leonard Cohen spends five years writing Hallelujah. He finally records it in 1984. When Cohen finishes recording the songs, he takes them to the 
head of CBS, who's this legendary figure named Walter Yetnikoff, who's the guy who releases Michael Jackson's Thriller and Bruce Springsteen's Born in USA. Not a dumb guy. Yetnikoff listens to Cohen's songs and says, what is this? We're not releasing it. It's a disaster. The album ends up being released by the independent label Passport Records. It barely makes a ripple. To make a long story short, I'm going to let Harrison Renshaw step in to summarize the crazy sequence of events that takes this obscure song into the zeitgeist. And Jeff Buckley's death was ruled as an accidental drowning. And so tragically, this is what catapulted Buckley's name into the spotlight. This is how people started listening to Grace, and ultimately how Hallelujah got recognized as the beautiful, incredible song that we all know today. After Buckley's untimely death, this is when a bunch of people started covering the song. This is when covers of the track started getting featured in seemingly every new TV show and movie, 15 years after Leonard Cohen finished the song. That's when people really started listening to Hallelujah. Isn't that kind of terrifying to you? And don't get me wrong, it's an amazing, gut-wrenching, beautiful, strange story, but there were so many pieces that needed to align for it to work. Leonard Cohen had to spend five years writing 60-plus verses only to be rejected by his record label. Then he kept tinkering with it. Legendary rock and roll figure John Cale happens to be in the crowd for him performing one of these new versions. He gets the lyrics from Cohen, changes them, and then records his version for a compilation album made by a French music magazine. A woman named Janine in Brooklyn is one of the few people that buy that album. Her house-sitter is Jeff Buckley. He does his version of the song, performs it in a bar, gets recognized, signs a deal, records his version, and tragically dies, and that is how we know what Hallelujah is today. It's easy to sit back and wonder what we've lost in the fire. All the masterpieces that didn't quite make it into the spotlight. Gladwell also marvels at how the stars had to align. Fifteen years. And think about how many incredible twists and turns that song takes before it gets recognized as a work of genius. It just happens that the independent label Passport Records releases the first version after the album it's on is rejected by CBS Records. Then Leonard Cohen doesn't give up, keeps tinkering and performing new versions of Hallelujah. John Cale, one of the most influential musicians of his era, happens to hear Cohen doing that. He revises the song some more. Kale's version goes out on the obscure French CD I'm a Fan, which goes nowhere except Janine's living room in Park Slope. And Janine happens to have a house sitter who happens to play it, happens to like it, and happens to have an ethereal, amazing voice. Buckley's version goes nowhere until he happens to die under the most dramatic and heartbreaking of circumstances. And then, finally, we recognize the genius of this song. But think about how fragile and elusive that bit of genius is. If any of those incredibly random things don't happen, you probably would never have heard Hallelujah. The first takeaway is to sincerely appreciate how much had to come together to allow us to see Zack Snyder's Justice League so soon, from reception and box office to mergers and management to availability and streaming wars, a global pandemic, fallow intellectual property, and of course, the committed fandom that never gave up. The next takeaway is the commitment to craft. Cezanne was his own worst enemy in a way. He threw up barrier after barrier. He wasn't thinking of us when he painted his paintings. That was really John Elderfield's point. The art of the experimental innovator is elusive. Some of them, which now are in museums, which we know he had tried to destroy. And you can see in some of them the cases of where he slashed the canvases. 
Why would he destroy his own canvases? You know, he had certain ideas about what he wanted to do and felt he actually never was actually getting to that point. And Picasso said that what actually engages us is Cezanne's doubt, his uncertainty. He's, he's obsessive. You know, he's absolutely, just totally obsessive. Cezanne would rather destroy his canvases than fail to present his art, his vision, a sentiment shared by Snyder. There would be no chance on earth a shot that is made after I left the movie. There would be no way. I would rather, I would destroy the movie. I would set it on fire before I would use a single frame that I did not photograph. That is a f***ing hard fact. I literally would blow that f***ing thing up if, if I thought for a second. <laughs> so the third takeaway is also in the Suicide Squad episode for obvious reasons the interference of executives with creatives. Elvis Costello, deportee in its original flawed form. It comes out in 1984, the same year, by the way, that Hallelujah first came out. And I'm not sure that's a coincidence, because 1984 is a very particular moment in pop music. The biggest album of that year was Michael Jackson's Thriller. Pop music glossed to perfection. There's not a single stray note or emotion on that record. It's the antithesis of songs like Hallelujah or Deportee. Along comes Costello. He wants to make an album in the midst of that cultural moment, and he's not interested in glossy perfection. Costello writes a series of dark, emotional, bitter songs, gritty and spare, to match his mood, something not 1984. Meanwhile, Langer and Winstanley have been brought on board to produce hits, polished, exquisite. Every little bit was pondered over and thought about and put together very carefully. I mean, you had we were dealing with a world that was perfection. It was We were trying to make pop perfection. You can imagine what happened when that world collides with Elvis Costello. And some of it just sounded like, I mean, even the band were kind of not very excited by some of the material. So it wasn't a great experience, but we did it very quickly. It was a mess. Perfectionism in a hurry. That's how you get to the bitter words, congratulations, you've just bought my worst album. As I said, I'm a massive Elvis Costello fan. And believe me when I say, Goodbye Cruel World was unlistenable, especially Deportees Club. It was angry and loud and upsetting. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. In 1995, the album is re-released by Rykodisc Records, and Elvis Costello writes in the liner notes, Congratulations, you've just purchased our worst album. You have to kind of admire his honesty. Attempting to chase popular sensibilities at the sacrifice of artistic integrity is how the theatrical version ended up the way it did, and still shamefully had Zack's name attached as director. That thing credited to him, which he notoriously insists to this day he has yet to watch. Can you be said to have directed something you've never even watched? That's Zack's version of Congratulations, You've Just Purchased Our Worst Album. (laughs) But the fourth and final takeaway is one of hope. Our lives are ongoing stories. Goodbye, Cruel World is not good. It's unlistenable. But it's what happens next that matters. You know how people always say, put your failures behind you, get on with your life, never look back? Elvis Costello does none of those things. Because he's Cezanne. He's not Picasso. He carries around a little black book where he writes draft after draft after draft of the songs he's thinking about. He changes lines in the middle of songs he's already recorded. He rearranges songs at different tempos or in different time signatures. He cannibalizes his own work, creating new songs out of old songs. And I don't know where to start or where to stop. 
He doesn't want to sign his name to the painting. And thank God there are people like him and Cezanne in this world, because without the obsessives and the perpetually dissatisfied and the artists who go back over and over again repainting what others see as finished, we would never have seen the beauty of Deportee. And you don't know where to start or where to stop All this pillow talk is nothing more than Finally talk and shop And likewise, the willingness to go back, work on and through, obsess and agonize to be true to ourselves lets us see something like Zack Snyder's Justice League. Now remember, I first brought you this story in response to Suicide Squad. And so, you know what to do. Okay, so let's talk about the themes Zach raised and apply them to our analysis of the teaser. And I can say that this Q&A reinforced why I became a Zack Snyder fan. In tackling Henry's question, he immediately goes to the theme and the why of it. In answering Ray's question, again, he goes into themes and mythology. This shows that this is Zack's priority, what his fans expect of him, and what he delivers. It's a beautiful thing to see an artist and his audience in accord. Zach makes it clear that he respects and is grateful for that. Yeah, that for me was amazing. It was, a, it was cool to have this kind of conversation with the fans where I could either release an image or just say something and just get this response that I could feel this kind of energy exchange that was really exciting. Well, I got to admit that we also, when we heard the news, we all got pretty emotional and uh, it's been an incredible journey. And for us, one of the amazing parts is that we were able to interact with and be part of this fan community in an amazing way. And it sort of changed us and made us, you know, really grateful for being able to have this dialogue and also, frankly, feeling the incredible support for the work that I get to experience when we see these fan-generated events and things that really have nothing to do with selling a movie or doing anything that has to do with commerce. It's really for love, and we feel it. And uh, also the amazing charitable work that you guys, the amount of money you've raised for suicide prevention is just unbelievable. So, again, thank you so much. We really we could Thank you Art moving the audience and the audience moving the artist. Amazing. But let's get back to the themes. First, Zach talks about them coming together. A lot of them basically are loners, right? You have Batman lives in a cave. His only buddy is Alfred, really. <laughs> you got Wonder Woman, who after Steve's demise, she's been kind of keeping quiet. You have Flash, who's got these powers, but he's kind of alone in the world. And you have Cyborg, who, you know, in a lot of ways, is not really happy about what's happened to him, this transformation. He has to, he's coming to terms with it. And then you have Aquaman, who also is this loner. And sort of thematically, them coming together and forming a family and finding in each other support. I think that's really what, in the end, drove me to want to see this happen or see them come together. And I think that when you take all these different personalities and bring them together into a single piece of group, it's a fun and awesome dynamic, but also that's there's a why of doing it. So perhaps a little like disparate musical notes that need to come together in a chord. Next, Zach talks about the Universal Hero's journey and mythology. When you started writing Justice League, what thematic ideas were you most excited to tackle? Additionally, how much of a challenge was it to keep the tone mythological? It's a great question. When Chris and I were talking about this movie, we're big fans of the Joseph Campbellian Hero's journey and also this notion that we would be creating a team. It's a the Knights of the Round Table joining together in an epic adventure. And this 
this is the call to action film that brings them as a story that brings them all together. And I think it is a mythological concept to begin with. So keeping it mythological, and especially when you think about it's Aquaman, it's Wonder Woman, Flash, Cyborg, and then Superman, you're really talking about a, a mythological group, you know. And it's so gratifying to hear Zack firm this approach to Justice League after spending hundreds of hours diving deep into Campbell, Arthurian legend and mythology. As I wrote last year, Man of Steel is superheroes taken seriously as real. BVS is superheroes taken seriously as literature. And Justice League is superheroes taken seriously as epic mythology. Man of Steel grounds everything in science, psychology, and consequences. BVS is poetic, dramatic, symbolic, referential, and literate. And Justice League pursues a massive scope of deep history, deep time, and epic forces. And I didn't discuss this before, but we'll get to consume this in around four hours of content. This truly gives it the breadth of an epic saga, both in its content and delivery. I'm ecstatic that we're going to see so much of Zack's vision, and I'm not at all concerned about the length. Besides living in an era where people will binge an entire series all at once, it's not like I haven't followed Man of Steel with three and a half hours of BVS before, right? <laughs> Okay, on to the trailer, and I want to say that I don't approach this as just another piece of advertising. Zack cut his teeth on music videos and commercials, which informs his filmmaking. So when he cuts his own trailer, it is its own mini-movie of sorts, with tension, arc, stories, and payoff. If you just want a shot-by-shot breakdown and Easter egg hunt, I'm sure that by the time this comes out, you will have dozens to choose from. Instead, I want to look at the whole piece through themes and as a work itself. And so, consider the construction. The teaser is composed of 32 scenes, minus the title cards and the stinger with dialogue at the end. Hallelujah has six lines of verse and four lines per chorus, and is performed at a consistent tempo. But Snyder gives the teaser forward momentum by picking up the pace with the visuals. For the first verse, we're given a scene per line, cutting to and pausing on black as punctuation. But as we continue through the first chorus, we still use the pace of one scene per line, but they begin to flow into one another as the teaser stops pausing on black. From the second verse, Snyder picks up the pace by 50% and we get nine scenes for six lines without pausing on black, which continues into the chorus and reprise 12 scenes for eight lines, pausing on black only to separate the chorus from the reprise and the reprise from the final extended hallelujah or release. For our 33rd scene, the entire Justice League standing together. And this is only in the editing, just the cuts, not the content. Snyder also sets the pace in the selection of the scenes. The first verse and chorus, the first minute, prominently feature slow motion. But in the second half of the teaser, it's all but absent. The scenes themselves begin to ramp up in emotion, action, violence, and visual spectacle. For example, contrasting the first half of the teaser with the second half, Darkseid is simply alone in the first half. But in the second half, he's flanked by Legion, Steppenwolf, Desaad, and Parademons. The threat has intensified. Author goes from being alone to a contentious stare down with Mera over artifacts of his heritage. Bruce goes from staring at a hologram to fighting Parademons and high-speed Batmobile action. Barry goes from saving Iris to a cosmic entity bending space and time. Victor goes from football player to heartbreak and heroism. And of course, Clark goes from standing there looking regal to the moving embrace of Lois and Martha. The selection of shots and their placement is not just eye candy, but an artist deftly conveying something. All of that intensity and speed builds even as the song itself maintains rhythm. Until we stretch out that final hallelujah to reveal the League come together and the Justice League logo. The Stinger provides 
provides a promise for what we'll see and the payoff for what we've hoped for. As Zach was quoted earlier, it's more a matter of tone than story. So eagle-eyed viewers will note that the exchange has continuity issues that take place in different locations and Diana is in and out of costume. But the point isn't to perfectly recreate a literal scene from the film, but communicate something to the fans, convey emotion, provide a feeling and a tone. And to me, it absolutely smashed it out of the park. The sense of story and progression isn't just in the pacing and the style, but in the overall story of the scenes. The first three scenes are a prologue before our story even begins. The history lesson from the Age of Heroes, Superman's sacrifice, and Batman's nightmare from the prior film. The final scene before the stinger is of the League together, and so we get that feeling of completion and being chronologically last. And so it begins with the death of Superman and ends with the League. And so you could say that all the shots in between also follow a general forwards flow. Introductory scenes from the film's earlier acts, followed by more intense climactic scenes from the film's later acts. All of this forward momentum is backed by a song with the weight of Hallelujah, making the teaser feel like the prelude to something significant with gravity, momentous, epic, mythological even. <laughs> Obviously, you can cut a trailer to more exciting music for a feeling of action or levity, but after the fiasco of that other thing and all the efforts, hopes, and wishes to bring us to this point, a more solemn, serious, and weighty tone was the right choice, especially to match its epic four-hour runtime. It will be so gratifying to finally see the hero's journey for our characters that such screen time allows. Now, I know many want to link the lyrics directly to what's on the screen, like Superman's death, the bell that's already been rung as the secret chord, or saying that Lois and Martha embracing what the song says touch is significant. And maybe it is, but I'd like to step back and take a different approach, considering Hallelujah's most common interpretations application to Zack Snyder's Justice League. As we discussed before, the song basically has a three-part arc to a romantic relationship. First, presenting the unobtainable ideal, David's secret chord, a perfect act of worship or hallelujah. Then, the ups and downs of an actual relationship, the cold and broken hallelujah. And finally, the hopeful determination that it was worth it anyways. Even though it all went wrong, still a hallelujah for the Lord of Song. And so we might try to map this onto Justice League. If Bruce acts as our point of view, or singer, then Superman's sacrifice stands as David's secret chord a perfect act of superheroism which has inspired him, and why he wishes to attain people who can be as selfless, inspiring, and as effective as Superman was in that moment. But in practice, what Bruce has is a bunch of weirdo loners. <laughs> Diana doesn't want to be a public figure yet. Arthur is burdened by his past. Barry is without friends, and Victor is full of pain and pathos. Not to mention that Bruce has not exactly been the best example to date. Together, their efforts will struggle to approximate Superman's secret chord and come up short. Nonetheless, they will try. They can still form a broken hallelujah. That theme of togetherness, both in the song and in the film, is that our connections are essential. But part and parcel with the sustenance they supply are the pains and woes they bring us. The complexity of living is that the same bonds that strengthen us hurt and break our hearts. Diana feels the loss of Steve, her sisters, and homeland. Arthur feels the rejection of his mother and the anger at his people. Barry, the injustice against his father and his awkward isolation. And we can only imagine the depths of loss felt by Lois, Martha, and Victor. And it is up to Bruce somehow to bind them all together. The drama is only on its face a battle with a cosmic alien enemy. The true meaning at heart is in the metaphor the universal battle for human connection against hopelessness and fear. 
And that's exactly what Darkseid embodies, because ultimately, Darkseid wants to be alone. The anti-life equation is about the removal of all free will, freedom, choice, and individuality. In essence, he hates that he exists in a universe of others. He intends to wipe out free will through subjugation, to make all one in unity, and the erasure of all other wills in the universe will leave him utterly and completely alone. That's what the Justice League are battling, literally, figuratively, externally, and internally, onward, inward, betwixt, and between. And so the themes of the song and the teaser reinforce one another. This is the most challenging activity that, that humans get into, which is love. We have the sense that we can't live without love, that life has very little meaning without love. So we're invited into this arena, which is a very dangerous arena, where the um, possibilities of, for humiliation and failure are, are ample. There's no fixed lesson that one can learn about the thing, because the heart is always opening and closing. It's always softening and hardening. We're always experiencing joy or sadness. So there's no jackpot in the whole enterprise. There's just, you're either going to have the courage because after a certain amount of time, the accumulation of defeats in this realm are going to be um, significant. So I think people that, um, in spite of the defeat, in spite of the impossibility of establishing reasonable contacts with the other, the people that are fortunate enough to be able to continue to do that are indeed fortunate. But there are lots of people that close down and yet the Justice League won't close down. Despite it all, they will come together, defeat Steppenwolf, and save the world. Maybe they aren't some magic secret chord, but they will achieve a working harmony, the way that we all have to, the way the song depicts. They are still a hallelujah for the Lord of Song. And so, it wasn't so much the song that made the difference. It was everyone playing it together. And it worked. And so Zack takes cutting a trailer as seriously as a small film unto itself, and he reinforces the themes of togetherness, the hero's journey, and mythology. The teaser begins with the death of Hope, Superman, but ends with the birth of Hope, as Bruce gives his halftime speech to the burgeoning team meant to stand in the gap for their fallen Superman. I knew that that trailer would have that scene and that moment, and I knew, and by the way, it's a big moment in the movie, so it's kind of a, important for the sweatshirt and sort of the whole, the movement, the sort of Snyder Cut movement and the fan movement kind of pays off with the trailer in some ways telling a story that's more significant than just some costumed adventures, an exploration of opening yourself to others, to new families, for a common cause. But it begins in the heart. When the heart hardens, the real weapon of mass, weapons of mass destruction are the hardened hearts of humanity. Aside from my own excitement to see Zack's vision, what's so great about the time and resurgence is how it's opened and softened the hearts of some. Man of Steel came out in 2013, meaning that about eight years will have passed by the time we get to see Zack Snyder's Justice League. With all that time, think of all the opportunity to have changed in perspective, grown as a person, or have a new outlook on revisit. Going from 13 to 21, or going from 27 to 35, or from 35 to 42. If their hearts aren't hard and their minds aren't closed, imagine the greater ability to appreciate it after eight years. And we have to let them, okay? 
to have a sense or spirit of amnesty. If you want to move forwards into the future, at a certain point, you have to stop litigating the past. In law, we have multiple measures and doctrines for this. The statute of limitations, latches, res judicata, collateral estoppel, pardon, ceilings, expungements, and so on. All to let our system and our lives move on or let go. The facts of the past can't change, but we can change our response to it. Bruce and Clark will never be the world's finest if they're always bringing up what they did to each other and just emphasizing past grievances and differences. If we're to believe in Bruce's redemption, we have to be open to it in others. So if somebody wakes up and suddenly sees the light, there's no need to dig through their feed to look for some past position to rub in their face. I've been defending Man of Steel since the second I walked out of the theater, but I started the site in the show because I hoped I wasn't alone. Mosaic exists to help me find others like you. <laughs> and imagine how gratifying it is to see everyone in the movement come together over the last seven years. Another study by Nobel Prize winning psychologist Danny Kahneman confirmed this. He and his colleagues tested which daily activities make us feel best. The winner? Socializing with others. It's better than eating, shopping, relaxing, or even watching TV. Just being with other people makes us feel good, even if those people are strangers. Science begins with observation, and Nick Epley observes something on his daily commute that is so commonplace, yet so odd when you really think about it. Where people would get on, sit down next to their neighbors, perfectly decent, lovely people going in to, to work for the day. They would sit down next to somebody else and they would then ignore each other for 45 minutes. Most train cars are full of people, which means they're also full of knowledge, stories, and jokes. But most are also deathly quiet. I mean, almost nobody ever talks on the train. The question is why? Nick decided to test this. He recruited passengers sharing his commute to work, dividing them into three different groups. He asked each group to act in a certain way while they were on the train. The one condition we told them to keep to themselves, just focus on their day ahead, don't engage others around you in conversation this morning. Second condition, we asked them to do whatever they normally do, which is typically the same as what happens in the solitude condition. Almost nobody talks to strangers on the train. And in the third condition, we asked them to do something radical. We asked them to try to make a connection with the person who sits down next to you this morning on the train, try to get to know something about him or her. So they were going to have a conversation. Let's think about these different groups for a second. Which one would you be happiest in? The groups in which you could enjoy your solitude or the one that forced you to talk to a complete stranger? You might naturally have a pretty strong intuition here, but I bet that intuition is wrong. People reported the most positive commute in the connection condition, less positive in the control condition, and least positive in the solitude condition where they kept to themselves. Being forced to talk with a stranger was far and away the most pleasurable experience. Simply making a connection with someone we don't know makes us feel really good. Nick's now done this very same study in a number of different contexts, on city buses, in cabs at the airport, in waiting rooms. They all find the same result. People are happiest when they're being social with someone. But what about that other person? You could imagine that we were potentially spreading misery, that the person who was talked to maybe was, was unhappy about this. We were like polluting the train with all of this unwanted conversation. So does your conversation make other people miserable? Well, Nick tested that too. They were also happier when they were talked to than when they were not talked to. And that effect was just as big as the effect on the people who were instructed to talk. I don't think we're spreading misery on the trains or the buses. Connecting with someone is pleasant, whether you are the one who's initiating it or the one you're, you're receiving it. Note 
that Nick's not advocating harassing someone on the train or continuing to try to talk to someone who clearly doesn't want you to speak to them. All Nick's saying is that a quick conversation can make us feel good. The problem is, that's not what we think is going to happen. When Nick asked people to imagine how they'd feel getting into a conversation with a stranger, they wrongly predicted that it wouldn't be fun or uplifting. The reason that's interesting is because our expectations guide our behavior. So if you expect it's going to be freezing cold outside, you'll pick up a jacket and you'll wear it. When you go outside, if you expect that it's going to be really warm outside, you won't wear a jacket. If I expect that talking to somebody will be pleasant, I'll do it. If I expect it'll be miserable, I won't. But I bet you're thinking, what if you're shy around people? Maybe all this talking to strangers stuff works if you're really outgoing, but maybe it sucks for introverts. And we did measure this and we found actually no difference at all between introverts and extroverts and in across these conditions. That is, introverts enjoyed connecting with others as extroverts did. Introverts did not enjoy keeping to themselves in solitude and extroverts didn't enjoy that either. What tends to vary are people's expectations about how they're going to feel. So an introvert, because they think they're not going to enjoy a party, is going to choose not to go. Whereas an extrovert who enjoys a party might choose to go. On average, people tend to feel happier when they are connecting with others. And that's true for both extroverts and introverts. Nick's results are quite challenging for a lot of people to hear. No matter what your personality type is, you will increase your happiness if you interact with people you randomly meet in stores or on public transport. I made this very point on the CBS Morning News recently. Happy people take time for social connection. They try to make connections with the people on the street. And I got some interesting reactions from the viewers. Here's one tweet from someone who says, quote, talk to a stranger on the bus. Are you insane? Don't talk to strangers. It's dangerous. Didn't your mama teach you anything? So so do you get do you get similar reactions where people hear these data and are just like, not true, not me? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it uh, all the time. I get a lot of pushback on this because the expectations are so strong. So what people are imagining, I think, are random people who might come up to you and talk to you. And they imagine sort of the worst case outcome. So they're imagining, you know, mentally ill people or something who are dangerous to them or psychopaths, whatever. But that's a different situation from what we're asking people to do here. We're just asking you to talk to a person who happens to be sitting next to you. And the person who happens to be sitting next to you is likely to just be a normal person, not a psychopath. We don't do something that's almost certain to make us happier because we think we'll be preyed upon by some imaginary psycho killer. Tiny human interactions are the burst of air we need for our happiness tires. Your mind might tell you a quick conversation is going to be awkward. Too much time, not worth it. But those intuitions are wrong, even for shy folks. So get out there and make a new connection. So let's try to be that friendly, day-enhancing conversation on the train, not the psycho on the bus that they fear. (laughs) Because as hopeful as I am, of course, the hardened hearts are going to be at it again, with all the same arguments and attacks as before. Your efforts are better spent bringing those not opposed into the fold, and the more momentum we have, who knows what can happen. At the very least, Zach feels more free to talk about his work and his process and share his insights. We lose that if our existence is primarily defined by strife and discord. I'm not asking for perfection, but do you feel hallelujah with what you're doing? Whatever this life throws at me, I'm going to end it with a hallelujah. In the end, hallelujah is about finding your hallelujah no matter what the circumstances are. It's a song you can sing no matter where you're at. And I think that it's a beautiful backdrop for humans who are trying to find their hallelujah, their joy, their reason for living, no matter where they're at. Hallelujah, my friends, hallelujah. Okay, I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time.
answer, son. Okay, I wasn't going to do this, but I've just been given the gift of a few more minutes to record, and when life gives you a moment, you should take it. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk a little about each scene until I run out of time. If I pace myself, I should be able to get through most of them, especially since I'm not going to be talking about plot or speculation. Just a few thoughts that cross my mind. So we've got to start somewhere. We're better than the beginning. <laughs> okay, so starting with pre-Omega Sanction, Dark Side is a powerful way to start that teaser. It's like saying right off the bat, my movie is different from that other thing. And uh, it's something that pretty much carries through the entire teaser, showing us scene after scene that we haven't seen in the film yet. And as Ray Porter has has acquitted himself with honor, I really look forward to his performance, even though I really don't care about Darkseid. Heresy! <laughs> Alright, next. Uh, so now we've got the death of Superman with that crazy frame rate, showing how we're going to revisit the events of BVS, much like how BVS revisited the events of Man of Steel. And the only thought that comes to mind right now is uh, something that was unaired in part of the Doomsday series, or maybe it was aired, I don't really know, I can't check right now, but basically pointing out that a powered Kryptonian, however mutated, has the potential of flight. Uh, BVS gave us several clues about that in the way that Doomsday would jump, the tactics that Superman would would use. And finally, that same uh, area effect gravity distortion field levitating surrounding debris in BVS with Doomsday that the Kryptonians had in Man of Steel. So all of that stuff flying around kind of reminded me of that. Uh, okay, next we've got that return to the nightmare future. And uh, yeah, 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 we know all the Easter eggs. Uh, you know, my main comment is how I'm so glad to see them revisiting the nightmare from BVS and to better pay off its inclusion in BVS. You know, I've always defended its place and purpose in DVS since it provides a lot of key information that people actually end up assuming in hindsight and pretending that they always knew. But it is so nice to have an easy mode argument once in a while, you know, uh, rather than have to walk people through all the logical reasoning and overcome all their cognitive biases. Like just for example, um, the detail of a lead lined wheelchair in the Ultimate Edition has probably saved me days of my life arguing psychology and motivations. <laughs> and so it may serve a similar function here, um, along with the history lesson in Justice League, just to show that their victory uh, isn't inevitable, that it can and literally has in another timeline worked out differently. And so these portents into the past and future help set the stakes for our eventual Justice League showdown. And on time travel, I have many thoughts, so many thoughts, and we might be tackling them soon. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> um, Diana at the Amazon shrine gives her more culture, more backstory, more engagement with the story. And and um, it's a closer and more tangible connection to her home, her heritage, and Hippolyta. Like, there's this qualitative difference between touching an arrow that your mother fired when you haven't beheld her in a hundred years versus just seeing that thing on a tiny TV, right? Uh, the other thing that stands out is the explicit use of magic interacting with the normal world, not just in some pocket of the planet. And another thing is that low angle shot really exemplifies the strengths of this aspect ratio. It'd be impossible to crop this and have the same impact. And I'm really looking forward to that novel aspect of the film, especially since it was always intended that way. You know, I have a few matte versions of films in my collection, but they're always, you know, curiosities containing compromises because they always have these shots or scenes never intended for the matte presentation. But here, the whole thing will be as intended and I can't wait. <laughs> 
Okay, as Bruce broods, and I like seeing that Superman will be a presence even in his absence, uh, hologram tech is not a huge leap, but it is a leap, and it also carries with it some implications. In fact, I think I had to do apologetics for this in Man of Steel. Basically, why does uh, liquid geo display technology prevail if holograms like Jor-El's can exist? So go back into the archives. I've answered that before. Um, Jason looks glorious. Full stop, period. <laughs> uh... The sneaker wave warning sign, that's a little bit of dry, ironic humor. I like that. Okay. Uh, knowing how much Zach loves football, I can't wait to see how much he loves bringing to life a single line from the script that just says, Victor scores a touchdown. I love it. And uh, speaking of past episodes, I think I have one partially on football. You can check the Endgame episode if you're interested. And uh, in the same scene, we get to see Victor's mother, and I can't wait to see those interactions restored. And if you want a survey on the theme of mothers in the films i think i've got an episode on that too <laughs> uh yep that's superman in the black suit all right uh wonder woman sharing a smile with that schoolgirl after the old bailey incident shows us that we might actually get a coherent ending to that scene and it's the first time that it strikes me how the color grading is going to be restored so i'm so happy for that uh the return of barry's scene with iris Yes, thank you. <laughs> As somebody obsessed with Flash's powers, I can't wait to see this scene properly. Um, <laughs> of all the debris that could have fallen from the sky, they selected hot dogs, and uh, I'd like to pretend that's an homage to the hot dog truck in Man of Steel that I can never unsee now. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> Cyborg and Batman show up in grim and gothic scenes, and I'm just so happy that a shot that the filmmakers were so proud of and pleased with is restored to its glory. Okay, and there are several orders of magnitude, more emotion, significance, and meaning with how Lois and Martha look at each other and embrace in a private and personal space. Compared to that, you know what? Forget it. Why am I thinking about the last time I had food poisoning while sampling something gourmet? And of course, we see that Lois is still wearing the engagement ring, telling us everything we need to know. I love it. I love it. I seriously love it. Next, we have the symbols of Arthur's birthright laying disregarded on the ground as we get his stylish departure. Another thing that comes to mind is how the aspect ratio seems like it's inspired Zack to use more mid-range, wider, nearly full-body shots. Usually, he uses a lot of close-ups in dialogue, which can get a little claustrophobic in the theatrical cut of BVS, where all the establishing shots and the breathing room was cut out. But here, pulled back, we get to see more of their costumes to keep us in the superhero setting, and I like it. Okay, Darkseid, Desaad, and Cyborg. Um, Zach gave us a ballpark figure of 2,000 visual effects shots for Justice League, and I just want to thank and encourage the incredible visual effects artists working on it right now. If those prior events affected you, I'm so happy that your work is going to get redeemed. It's going to get seen the way it was intended, and I'm so sorry for the best efforts you had to put out under duress. And if you're working on it now, I can't wait to see your best efforts for a film that's going to go down in history. You know, everyone still watches Superman 78 and Batman 89, and this is the first Justice League film. Yes, you heard me right. This is the first Justice League film. History's greatest social media response to a film that the studio never released. And we're still watching and discussing Man of Steel and BVS like it was yesterday. This is going to be evergreen like nothing else, and your efforts will be immortalized forever. I know you're going to honor that and do us all proud. I can't wait to see your work. And that same evergreen quality is why I'm so excited to see Ray Fisher and Amy Adams bring their acting chops to bear. We see their pain and pathos in these scenes. I mean, you can feel 
Lois's heart leap into her throat as she dares to hope at what she's seeing, and we see Victor's heart ripped out as Silas gives his life in an homage to Watchmen in Terminator 2. The little adjustment in Hippolyta's scene suggests that we're going to see something more dynamic than before and perhaps more sensible. Steppenwolf's appearance promises better continuity with BBS and bodes well for Siren Hines, who will have the time and lines to actually bring his character to life. And we get the return of this Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Cyborg shot reminding us that there's probably a good amount of action and an entirely different battle plan and composition to see. Flash makes good on his name as Living Lightning, the Batmobile under attack, and Superman one-on-one with Steppenwolf. And like I said, the actions are coming fast and furious now, including this new shot of Batman blocking small arms fire from a parademon and flash facing down this eerie blue mushroom cloud. Even in this teaser, Snyder's giving us an emotional arc for Lois, who in embracing Martha feels so strongly who they're both missing. And then later, Lois's perfect smile conveys the relief, joy, peace, and restoration to be embraced by that lost love, that dashed hope. You can feel the warmth of Clark holding his whole world, and the whole world chokes up watching it. <laughs> Uh, Victor reckons with the power to destroy mankind in the palm of his hand, and we get a glimpse of the extended history lesson in full force King Atlan. Cyborg's battle mode and heroics are restored, Flash communing with the cosmic, and finally, the League fulfilling their hallelujah. In the stinger, I'm reminded that we haven't seen new, unadulterated Snyder footage for over a thousand days, and we're about to get four hours of Chris Terrio dialogue and storytelling with it all. My heart swells, and finally a message for the fans, for the film, and for your life. I don't care how many demons he's fought and how many hells. He's never fought us. Not us united. You're the answer, son.